If you've ever considered becoming a yoga teacher, but you're just not sure how you could make it work financially, you're not sure if it's really the lifestyle or the community for you, if you're coming from a successful career and you're just not sure if you want to downsize, I'd encourage you to take a look at the Yoga Teachers College. There's a couple of things that we're doing very differently here. I've been training yoga teachers for 11 years, and something I've learned along the way is that the market's changing really quickly, regulations coming very quickly, there's going to be a lot of uh, public sector jobs in in nursing facilities, in school systems, in university settings, in hospitals, and there aren't really any yoga training programs out there geared up for that. So that's what we're moving towards. We're actually moving towards university accreditation, which will happen here in the next few years. And we're focusing on the science of yoga. So taking exercise physiology and applying that to classic Hatha yoga in a very business positive sense. So we help our teachers learn how to apply exercise physiology and yoga in a way that actually they can make a living. We're business positive. We help people with marketing and we help people learn how to teach great classes. It's a really exciting program. We have people from all over the world, all different backgrounds, and we're creating a really big movement. To learn more, check out applications, watch some videos, check out some testimonials from some of our students. Go to yogateacherscollege.com. We do intakes uh, on the first of every month and we have immersions here in Barcelona where you come to train with myself and my team directly every quarter. When I was younger, I was always so opinionated about religion, about politics, about food systems, about everything in between. And as I've gotten older, I still have opinions, but mostly I keep them to myself because I'm just not sure that I'm right. And doing this yoga talk show over the years, I speak to so many people on every single side of political lines, of animal ethics lines, of evolutionary lines, of spiritual lines, and I just get more questions than I have answers. And this week's show dives into kind of the big question, which is where do we all come from? And there's the, the Darwin evolution theory, there is the Genesis, you know, Old Testament theory, and I think almost everybody listening is pretty dissatisfied with both of those explanations. I know I certainly am. And our guest on today's show is going to unpack why we're dissatisfied and things that we should think about. If if this show goes well, I think you'll end up with more questions than you'll have answers. I certainly did. And I hope that'll kind of open your mind up to some important discussions, which I think will be extremely relevant in the years to come. As our society progresses, as technology progresses, I think we're moving towards an era where these really, really challenging things like moral and ethical decisions are going to need to be rolled out on a public policy level with self-driving cars with euthanasia with access to augmented reality all kinds of really complicated choices are, are right on the forefront here and i think a lot of the old school discussions from hundreds of years ago are suddenly going to become front and center in political conversations in leading thinker conversations and just in policymaker conversations this is a departure from our normal shows about health and wellness but i think it's an important one i think it's an interesting one it's also a really long one so i hope you hang in through the end you can always email me your questions comments and feedback podcast at yogabody.com or else yogabody.com forward slash ask lucas for voicemail just don't send me hate mail this is just a discussion i'm not trying to to uh, convert you or proselytize you. I'm just as confused as everybody else. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Mm-hmm. 
So hello and welcome everyone. This is Lucas Rockwood with the Yoga Talk Show and thanks for tuning in. Today's show is called What Darwin Got Wrong and I'm joined here with Perry Marshall. Perry Marshall is a world-renowned business consultant, probably best known for his pioneering work in pay-per-click marketing, the 80-20 principle put in practice, and his unique approach to scientific advertising. His most recent work is an exhaustive study of something totally different, evolution versus intelligent design. That's what we'll be chatting about today. His recent book, Evolution 2.0, Breaking the Deadlock Between Darwin and Design, is available on Amazon or else on his website, his full name, perrymarshall.com, or else cosmicfingerprints.com, and we'll link up to these uh, sites in the show notes as well. So, Perry, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be on your show. I know you got some awesome things that you want to talk about today, and we're really going to make people think. We're going to really shake it up, and we're probably going to approach this in a different way than you've probably heard before. So, yeah, um, thanks for having me. So, Perry, when people plug your name into Google, they're going to see Google AdWords guy for, like, you know, the first 300 pages of search results. So how does a marketing guy <laughs> how does a marketing guy end up dedicating so much time to this idea of evolution versus intelligent design? I mean, writing a book is no small feat. It's a huge undertaking, and I know that there's years and years of research behind any book, and I, I have a feeling this is even a bigger project for you. So how does this happen? How does a marketing guy get so deep in the thick of the weeds with this sort of proverbial debate, evolution versus intelligent design? Well, in my very, very first um, marketing piece that I ever created, um, it was a CD called Guerrilla Marketing for High-Tech Salespeople. Uh, I said, and that was 15 years ago, um, I said, people are struggling because they're confusing principles with techniques. And techniques are things that they're flash in the pan. They might work this week, but they don't work next week. And principles are things that are true for all time. And, um, like, I really believe that. I mean, uh, right down to the bottom of my soul. Um, and and it's it's true in business. And, and it's really true everywhere else. And, and the reason I came to care about this so much was I got in an argument with my brother about this stuff. And he... It, it kind of pulled pulled us into a discussion about creation, evolution, intelligent design, and um, I realized that I didn't know, and uh, and I had I had a very strong not only intuition but a very specific set of experiences as an engineer, which caused me to look at the hand at the end of my arm and go, that is a fabulous design that could not possibly happen by accident. But then I. I started to become aware that a lot of biologists saw this pretty differently, and I knew that I didn't know. And um, and what really um, kind of sent me searching, in addition to like all of the personal and spiritual questions that it tends to raise, it was also this other question, which is, you know, they never taught us Darwinian evolution in engineering school. It never even came up. And I took all these classes where you optimize these certain things, uh, control systems and stuff like that, uh, in very particular ways, and you would use these very particular methodologies. And none of them even resembled uh, traditional Darwinian evolution. And so I really started to wonder, do the biologists know something that we engineers don't know? And if we knew what they knew, would suddenly there be a leap forward in engineering or do the engineers know something that the biologists don't know? Um, and 
I realized that the, these are two professions that needed to start talking to each other. And I knew that if, if I pursued this long enough, I might get to the bottom of it. And so I just kind of threw myself into the void. And as we go along here, I think it will be evident that all of my experience in marketing and even Google AdWords had a lot to say about this, um, like a lot, um, not just a little bit. And, and so um, it, it, if you lived inside my skin, you would actually see that the engineering, the biology, the, the marketing, all of the stuff flows together in a very interesting way, but it's not obvious on the surface. So hopefully we can flesh that out. And why does this question torment so many people anyway? And I think, you know, when we say, when you throw out these terms evolution, I think people just, they imagine the chimpanzee turning into a human, and then you throw out the term intelligent design, they imagine a white bearded guy in the sky sort of, you know, designing the world. And those, of course, are, are ridiculous. You know, it's much more complex than that. But why does this question torment so many people? Why is this something that since the dawn of man, people have just struggled with? Why, why do you think this is such an important issue for people? Well, I, I think everybody really, really wonders, who am I? I mean, we do. Who are you? Who am I anyway? Who is Lucas? Who is Perry? Really? Okay. And you can't separate that question from where did we come from? Because we don't entirely make ourselves. And in fact, I think we only make a fraction of ourselves and the rest of ourselves is made by who we came from, where we came from, right? What tribe are you from? And, you know, and really what, what is that tribe? And, you know, does that tribe go back to the chimpanzees or not? Um, All those questions, these are very primal questions. I mean, I think these questions are as significant to us as oxygen And I think that when you confront somebody with a different view, if they're afraid that it might be true, they might feel like you just cut off their oxygen and and they will go into fight or flight. And, and so I think um, evolution is right. Like the big, the big five abortion, gun control, immigration, gay rights, evolution. I think, I think those are the five most contentious topics in, in the our world. society. Yeah. Well, you know, I was just <laughs> thinking when you meet somebody new, the first thing you say is, what do you do and where are you from? And without those two bits of information, you're not even really comfortable talking to somebody. You know what I mean? You're, and so that's if, right. You just, you're not really sure what kind of cards they're holding. And basically all of us are walking around with this question and we're, we're not really sure. We throw out this idea of the big bang, but like, come on, do, uh, you know, how, how do we really get into that? So this leads right into my next question. You know, the, when I talk to people about this, people will say, and I do a lot of work in nutrition, a lot of work in, in yoga, mm. people will often say things like, I believe in science. These are hard facts. and These are science. I'm a scientist. And I guess in recent years, I've just been really surprised to learn that science is often wrong. In fact, to get to right, there's often a lot of wrongs. Most, you know, double blind yeah. clinical studies, like something like 40% of them can't be reproduced. Like science is bad. <laughs> like it's bad. Yeah. It's mostly yeah. bad. And like scientists, they know this. It's just the lay pop- population who thinks that, you know, because it was published in a journal, it's suddenly a fact. It's just, a, it's a stepping stone. And many of which are, are wrong or some degree of wrong, which hopefully will get us to a right or maybe some degree of right. So what do you, how, how do you think about this when people say, 
I don't believe in intelligent design or I only believe in Darwin because I, I believe in science? What, what are people really saying there? First off, 80% of the science that we are pretty sure is right. And I don't mean gravity, okay? Like that's pretty rock solid, okay? But take anything that within the last 50 years, we are pretty sure we have right. I will bet you that 80% of it will be wrong in 100 years. So I agree with you. Um, science is constantly, um, you know, the serpent that's eating its own tail, okay? And the second thing is that what most people think is science is really marketing. Most people don't really have any idea what science is. And, you know, Lucas, I've known you for a long time, and you and I both know what scientific marketing is, right? Okay, it's rigorous. It always surprises you. You write, you know, you I mean, the best copywriters in the world can look at a bunch of ads and they can vote on what they think is the best ad and the millions of people out there will always vote on a different ad than the experts think is going to win, right? Uh, you do all these A-B split tests. Um, Google, Facebook, and all the major online platforms are the result of tens of thousands of rigorous split tests. But the irony is that none of the answers are ever exact, <laughs> okay? And, 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 and you and I know this really well. Um, and so science is mostly in, in, the, in the experience of the everyday human being. Science is a word that is bastardized for the purpose of selling you something, whether it's nutrition science or computer science or whatever. Okay. And so, you know, I love science and I am very comfortable with science. I'm an electrical engineer. In fact, I, I would argue that electrical engineering is a branch of science and it is the most successful branch of science so far in history. It's more successful than physics. It's more successful than chemistry. It's more successful than biology because look how productive it is. I mean, most of the transformations in our culture have come from electrical engineering in the last 50 years. So electrical engineering has a lot to say about science, but, you know, you, you, ha you have to be really careful. And, and also, you have to really understand that um, science can only answer what questions. It can't answer why questions or should questions. Religion answers those questions, and science cannot answer them. And, and um, the, the, the idea that there is a war between science and religion is a ridiculously oversimplified truncation or amputation of the big questions of humanity. If you want to say that science, like science is where the answers are, and religion isn't, the number one, it ignores the fact that huge amounts of scientific studies can't be reproduced and that it's constant, it really is constantly changing. And secondly, um, that, that science cannot tell you, um, you know, whether it's right or wrong to, you know, uh, to take care of mentally handicapped people and, you know, and, and like all these kinds of, of humanitarian, what, science can't tell you whether there should be free health care. Science can't tell you that, okay? There's tons of questions that, that it can't even possibly address because they're, 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 
orders of magnitude more complex than than any scientific experiment. And so, and so, really, there's a, there's a very deep confusion uh, out there, and and the religious traditions that are out there. Um, that have been around a long time. They have been around a long time for reasons that most of the time modern people don't really understand. Um, and, 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 and those questions are very fascinating. But, you know, if, if you think you're too smart for Adam and Eve or too smart for Cain and Abel or too smart for Noah's Ark, I don't, you know, I don't really care whether you take those stories literally or figuratively, but if you think you're too smart for those stories, you don't even know what those stories are about. So here's, here's, where, here's where I get stuck. So when I talk to people who believe in evolution, you know, this random mutations over time have created this, and, and I look at, like you said, I look at my arm and I just say, I don't think so. Or I go to any zoo and I just say, I just, I just don't think that's how it happened i just i've never seen accidents be so perfect and then on the other side you know right. i'll talk to fundamentalists who again paint this pure this picture of a white bearded guy in the clouds seven days earth is created and also i just think i don't think so and it, it, it's really strange over the years especially doing this crazy podcast all these years i've become this crazy moderate i just can't seem to form an opinion about everything i'm just totally confused but i find that you know when i look at both <laughs> when i find when I find both sides of those arguments, both of them, I just say, I don't think that's what happened. I think it's something else. And so I'm curious where you land now after doing all this research. Is it a bearded guy in the sky seven days? Is it, you know, monkeys turning <laughs> into humans? I mean, how do you even start to find a middle ground when, you know, the, the fundamentalists are so, so polarized in what just, just can't be that simple? Well, I, I felt very much the same way. Um, very much, and um, and and I I arrived at a at a little rule that has been very productive for me. And here's what the rule was: ignore no verifiable fact. Okay. Now I talk about eighty twenty a lot. You know that 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 twenty uh, percent of the things constitute eighty percent of what's actually important, and eighty percent of the things really aren't very important. And so you actually have to you have to keep your list of verifiable facts pretty small because a big list isn't verifiable okay and i and i said i'm going to explore and i'm going to search and i'm going to fling myself into the void and i'm going to look for answers and any time i find something where you know what as far as i can possibly tell this thing appears to be true. So I'm going to put it on my chalkboard, and even if I can't figure out how to fit it into my puzzle pieces, I'm not going to erase it, and I'm not going to deny it. And I, and I will let the chaos spin, perhaps even for years, until, until I find a place for this puzzle piece, but I will not cross it off because I don't like it. Okay? And where this put me was in a state of holding a lot of things with an open hand for a long time and many times going, okay, if this puzzle piece over here is a fact and this one over here is a fact, I do not know how to put them together unless I can find some other puzzle piece that is missing. So let me give you a, 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 an evolution example of this, okay? So... I came to two seemingly contradictory conclusions pretty early on, like in the first two years of my search for this. And by the way, this search was very anxiety-ridden and uncertain, like 
where is this going to take me? It was scary. Uh, why? Well, you know, I, I grew up in this really conservative Christian environment. And, you know, you may like it, you may not like it, you may think it's silly, you may think it's great, but, you know, it's pretty tightly woven, and in many respects, it's pretty well put together, and it does work for a lot of people, and it basically worked for our family. And so if I was going to go possibly unravel that, that really was scary, okay? Like you, and, and there's the law of unintended consequences. Like, well, you know, if you – if you, you know, if you, if you take this, if you have a shirt and you start pulling on one of those threads, you don't know, like the, the pocket like falls off, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, 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 and that was scary. But I said, I said, I'm going to pursue the truth wherever it leads. Uh, I believe the truth will set you free. Jesus said that. I think that's true. Even if, even if Jesus isn't for real, I, I think that's a good truth. So, so, so off I went. So, so here's my two contradictory truths. So I'll tell you two stories. Story number one, I go to this whale museum in Boston, and they have this whale skeleton mounted, and near the back of the whale are these little tiny bones that are floating inside the whale's body that look like this shrunken down set of legs or flippers, okay? But they, they don't go outside of the body, and they don't look like they do anything, Okay. And an evolutionary person will tell you those used to be legs and the, it didn't need them anymore. And so they're just shrunken down there. And so the, the very first thing that you would say is, you know, if I were God, and by the way, you always have to make assumptions like this, like that's a theological assertion. Like you can't even do this without making theological assumptions, which means that the, nobody can claim that theology is a silly topic, <laughs> okay? All right? Theology is a real topic, and you cannot get away from it, regardless of what you think, okay? So if I were God and I was making a whale, I would not put teeny little whale legs inside the whale's body that don't do anything, okay? Because I'm an engineer. You don't do that, right? You don't stick useless parts in stuff, okay? Now, I'm going to come back to that in a minute because there's another piece of it that I really want to point out to you. But then let me jump to the other side, the, the intelligent design side. One of the biggest epiphanies that I ever had in my life happened one day. This was probably May or June of 2004, maybe. And I was, so I had gone down the evolutionary rabbit hole. I got in this argument with my brother. He really perplexed me. Uh, he's really smart. Um, and and I said, I gotta, I'm going to find out. And I started buying all these books. I'm buying intelligent design books. I'm buying creation books. I'm buying Darwinian evolution books. I'm downloading scientific papers. I'm surfing the Internet. And I'm obsessive. Actually, Lucas, you know me. <laughs> um, you're obsessive, too. Um, and, 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 and like, so like you go in this binge and you buy all these books and you read all these books and you can't get enough and you, you're thinking about it all the time. And, you know, when, even when people are talking to you, you're staring off into space and you're thinking about that and you're not listening to them. And, and, um, so I'm trying to figure out, okay, what is a genetic mutation and how would that produce evolution? And what are these genes and what is the genetic code? I'm trying to figure this out and I'm reading about genes and, I, and I'm looking at the information structure of a gene, and I go, Bob, whoa, I've seen this before. I've seen this before. 
You know where, where I've seen this? This is in my Ethernet book. In 2002, I wrote a book called Industrial Ethernet for the ISA, which is the world's largest professional organization of process control engineers. And I wrote this book about how Ethernet works on the factory floor. Because I worked in industrial networking for six years, and we sold stuff to companies like Applied Materials who are making semiconductor fabs where downtime is $27 million an hour. They're profoundly conservative. They're making Pentium chips, and they have to have networking components that send all the information back to all these different sensors and stuff. And this eventually led me to writing an Ethernet book, which is how do how does the information put together in the Ethernet packets? And, you know, everybody deals with this because everybody has an Ethernet router in their house or a Wi-Fi or something. And that's what this is. There's a chapter on Wi-Fi in, in my book. And, by the way, this book just came out in its third edition this year. Okay? So I wrote this book. And you know what, Lucas? An Ethernet packet and a gene look almost identical. Okay? And what do I mean by that? Like, nobody ever thinks about this stuff unless you're an engineer. But, like somebody sends you an email or you're talking on your cell phone or you're texting or whatever, there's all these packets that are coming in and out of your computer. And it's like, okay, so this is, you got all these little sections of a packet. This is the beginning of the message. Now here's the message. And the message has all these different little parts. They're kind of like grammatical parts of speech, really. Okay. Um, it's like, it's a language is what it is. Uh, okay, here's the end of the packet, and then here's this little checksum to make sure it got sent correctly and crunch these little numbers and check things out. Oh, it didn't get sent correctly. Please resend the packet. All this stuff is going on, and all this stuff is in DNA, and DNA is a code just like HTML is a code or PHP is a code or just like an Excel spreadsheet has a file format or, or a Word document has a file format. Genes are file formats. Whoa. And, and, and that was my breakthrough moment. I said, oh, I can, I can figure this out now. This is a software engineering program. This is a digital communication problem. Evolution is a software engineering problem. It's an engineering problem. In fact, any theory of evolution is an engineering problem, no matter what the theory is. Uh, creationism is an engineering problem. It's God did it. Evolution is no nature did it. So however nature did it, it's an engineering problem. Oh, I can figure this out. Well, well, here's what's interesting about Ethernet packets and codes. They're all designed, every last one of them, except DNA, which we don't know where it came from. But all the other codes, 100% of all the other codes are designed. And they're designed by humans, and they're usually designed by really smart humans. So it wouldn't be too ridiculous to conclude that the genetic code is designed, and it looks really, really designed, okay? But let me ping pong back to the other side, now, and this will give you a flavor. This will give you a flavor how far this really progressed. I'm at the Whale Museum, and I figured out the Ethernet part and the code part, but I'm looking at those, I'm looking at those little whale flippers that are folded up inside its body, and I'm going, you could never get those flippers to fold up by accident. Okay, so A... The story that there, this used to be at one time a four-legged creature, and now it, the legs are all folded up inside because they're not necessary anymore, that story actually makes a lot of sense. It matches everything I see. It makes perfect sense. But it does not make it sense to say that that happened randomly 
because I worked in manufacturing. You know, I, I, I went to the Ford Motor Plant where they've got programmable logic controllers with all these programs. They're stamping out cars and, put, and welding fenders on and, and all this kind of stuff. And it was like, well, if we we're going to shrink a fender down to one-tenth its original size and stick it in the trunk, well, that wouldn't happen by accident. That would be a high... That would be a highly, highly coordinated set of manufacturing operations that would have to be changed, and they would have to be changed in a coordinated way. So now I was really confused. I was like, well, okay, these look like Ethernet packets, and Ethernet packets are designed, and codes are designed, and TCP IP is like, you know, designed by geniuses in the 1960s because it's still being used. Obviously, it works really well, right? Um but it looks like these whales evolved and it looks like a lot of things evolved. And so I see a lot of anecdotal evidence that I can't prove that historically it appears as though this stuff evolved. So what the heck is going on here? And for two years, I just couldn't figure it out. All I could do is apply my imagination and everything I knew about engineering and communication theory. And I would just sit there and go, well, you know, if this did evolve, there's really something amazing going on here that nobody's really explaining properly. I totally am not buying the traditional Darwinian explanation, the way they explain it in all the textbooks. Um, and I've read all these arguments and they just don't make sense. They're incoherent. And then, and, 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 and the sign that they're incoherent is how defensive snarky and angry even the scientists get when they're <laughs> trying to defend th themselves against the critics. It's like, you know what? If you were so confident about your theory, you would not be so angry right now. <laughs> and you would not be calling these people names. What is your problem? Why are you acting like a seven-year-old? Okay? And so, and as a marketer, and as a, you know, and even as a guy who's been through therapy, you know, I, I'm looking at this, I'm going, man, like, something really is not adding up here, right? All the polemic and all of the, like, the, the grudge match between the two sides, I'm really getting sick of it. I'm like... Guys, you, you're not helping. Like, stop your name calling, stop your mudslinging. And so I just, and I started reading more and more scientific papers because scientific papers tend to not do that, right? They, they, they tend to just, you know, um, present, present their, their, their case. Um, well, so then I had another epiphany, and, and it came when this guy emails me a paper by James Shapiro from the University of Chicago. And he goes, hey, Perry, you'll like this. Take a look at this. And this other guy was also an engineer. And he knew that I was trying to figure this out. And I read this paper, and Shapiro tells this story. And here's the story. In 1944, Barbara McClintock, she was a geneticist. Um, she was using radiation from x-rays to hack the DNA of corn plants. In fact, they didn't. They didn't call it DNA back then because they hadn't figured out DNA. But what they did know was there was this strand of stuff, and it, and it, and it was in, in the form of genes and chromosomes, and they could look at the chromosomes. And she was a wicked good um, genetics person. And between the microscope and the pattern of the corn kernels that would grow and in, in, come in the growing corn plants, she could figure out what the genetics were doing, Okay really sharp woman, way ahead of her time. And she had this idea like, hey, you know, what if I break a chromosome by dosing this plant with some x-rays 
uh, and let, let's try to, you know, break this chromosome or break that chromosome. And she had this idea of what was going to happen. Well, the plant just totally threw her curveball. And what the plant did is I'll, I'll give you a, so she broke a chromosome and the plant could not reproduce. It's like the program crashes because some data got corrupted. Okay. Which would be a, a completely correct description. Okay. Just like in a computer like if you trash part of a computer program and it crashes, okay? So the plant can't reproduce because the code is broken. So here's an analogy to describe what this plant did. It would be like if you tore a page out of a mystery novel, and then I said, Lucas, here's a novel. Page 357 is ripped out. I want you to look at everything before and after that page I want you to con reconstruct what you think is missing so that the story makes perfect sense. And you have to do it based on words, phrases, and sentences that are already in the book. And you have to copy them from elsewhere in the book. Now, Lucas, if I said, if I told you to do that, could you? Um, no. Ah, you know, if you're a good author, I think you could. If, if, if I took my time, sure, sure. I mean, is it, you're... If, you took, if you took your time, sure. right? Like, well, there's some missing story here, but... I can infer you could piece the that it would back together. Sure. So you, you could stitch it back together. Well, this is what the plant did. It went to other chromosomes and started copying stuff from other parts of the DNA, and it patched it together. It fixed the problem, and it went on, and it reproduced. And it grew new corn, and she could look at the corn kernels, and she figured out what had happened. And so she started developing this whole new language for what was going on. She called them controlling elements and transposing elements. She called them jumping genes. And she figured out there are genes that control other genes, and the genes that control the other genes can move around. And when the plant is under stress, it will start rearranging the controlling genes, and, um, and the, the plant will literally reprogram its own genetics in real time in order to adapt to a situation. And if you don't damage it too badly, it will recover. And it'd be like Nietzsche said, anything that doesn't destroy you will make you stronger. This is what just happened in this plant. So, so seven years later, she, she, she gets this all sorted out and she presents it at a symposium in Cold Spring Harbor, New York, uh, to all these other uh, geneticists and biologists. And half of them thought she was crazy and the other half just were angry. Like, woman, uh, plants do not control their genetics. The genetics control the plant. We, lady, we figured this out 40 years ago. It, it only goes one way. It goes from genetics to plant. It does not go from plant to genetics. And she's like, yes, it does go from plant to genetics. It goes both ways, but they didn't believe her. And she couldn't get them to accept it. And so she basically went underground for 20 years. She kept doing her research, and she kept sending her reports to the people that were paying the bills, but she stopped publishing. Well, you know what happened? She won the Nobel Prize in 1983 for discovering transposition in mobile genetic elements, which any biologist of today who knows anything about biology knows that this is a major, major component of biology and adaptation, that this is going on all the time, that the cells in your body are switching things on and off and rearranging genes and making changes so as to adapt to your constantly changing environment so that so your body is proactively adapting to what's going on it's not just passively accidentally 
getting copying errors or anything like that. In fact, this paper that, that Dr. Shapiro wrote was explaining it was a major missing piece. You remember, I, I was searching for a missing piece, and I, I knew it had something to do with error correction because the Darwinists were saying that errors creep in through natural copying errors and stuff like that, and occasionally they're better. And I said, that never happens in engineering. That right. never happens. In fact, as an author of an Ethernet book, you, you can write it in blood. You can be dead certain you never get better code from copying errors ever. So the, the idea okay. would be like if you went out to GitHub and just like took all the errors and suddenly you ended up with like New York City or something. That, that's essentially what, what the idea is, right? Like you could just get a bunch of random right. code and amazing things would sometimes happen. I, I, I think that's total nonsense too. I mean, I don't think anyone listening believes that it, that, that would happen. There, there's a lot of people that try to get around it. and They'll say, oh, but, but it, it just gradually like, well, you know, we're only taking a little bit of random code from over here, and we're just putting a little bit in. Well, I, I ran that through my engineering filter, and I said, hey, you know, like a little bit of rat poison is a little bit of rat poison, man. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't ever help, okay? And you never recover from it. It's like, you know, or like, oh, hey, you know, um, I'm not really happy with how this web page is doing, so let's let's try a, a, a new version and I'll just bang my elbow on the keyboard with some random letters. And, you know, once in a while that might be better. No, it will never be better. Um, you know, and, and even if it is once, it'll never be twice, right? You'll always end up with a dead end and always end up crashing and burning. And, and, and so what, what Shapiro was explaining in this paper is that every single cell has a three-step error correction system where when the DNA is copied to make a new cell, the first stage has a one error in 10,000 rate. The next stage has a one error in 10 million. And the next stage has one error in 10 billion. Okay. Which, um, and there's this enormous amount of machinery that's devoted to this, which is exactly like Ethernet routers. It's exactly like your cell phone. They have that too. They have to have it or it wouldn't work. And so what Barbara McClintock really discovered was not only can the error correction circuitry in cells get you back to the original state many times and just like make an error disappear through redundancy and repair mechanisms, not only that, but if it's damaged beyond repair and it doesn't know what to do, or if the organism is faced with a situation like it's too hot, it's too cold, it's too salty, the organism will re-engineer itself to make the adaptation. And so what this actually suggests is that the whale organism knew how to shrink those legs down, and it did so in response to a changing environment. Now, what I'm telling you, first of all, you can observe, like all the stuff McClintock saw and more, you can observe it. It happens in real time. It's, germs develop resistance to antibiotics in 20 minutes by cutting, splicing, rearranging DNA, trading DNA with other germs. It's unbelievable what they do. It does not happen by accident. Absolutely not. Okay. But it's a very chaotic process because it's just like business and marketing and entrepreneurship. Like you don't know what's going to work. 
You just try stuff. You make your very best guess. You know, you go, you go to a mastermind group and you brainstorm with other people and, and you're like, hey, man, you know, like if we don't fix this problem, I'm going to be out of cash in 60 days. And I'm going to have to lay all my employees off. And somebody's like, well, here, why don't you try this? And he's from some other industry. Do you realize bacteria have been doing this for 3 billion years? They have mastermind groups. And, and the most successful ones are when they go outside of their colony to some other cell and like, hey, you got any code? And, and, so, and so when I say that I think the whale feet got shrunken down through genetic reprogramming, I mean, I'm really bringing you to the bleeding edge of current science where we can see some of this happening on a small scale in a short period of time, and we're extrapolating what happened over a long period of time. But do you see how this is not random accumulation of accidents, therefore I got an arm, which doesn't really make any sense, right? And this is also not bearded guy in the sky going poof. It's actually, it's more impressive than either of those stories. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it's yes to both, kind of. And I guess this is where yeah. this is where people get lost, or at least where I get lost, because you know we have people listening and they're trying to be good Christians. We have people listening who are trying to be good Muslims. We have a ton of atheists listening and they're just trying to be good people, and they're thinking, right. okay, intelligent design, evolution. You know, sh should I just learn how to be a better person? Is this going to help me? So, so you know, tie this. Tie this all back around. I mean, I think we've given people a lot of things to really think about, and um, more than anything, I think we've opened a lot of questions for people, which is a good, is always a good position to be in. But how does this tie into a greater, a greater meaning in terms of who we are and what we're supposed to do? If intelligent design exists and evolution exists, and both of these have happened perhaps in a different way, not the fairy tale way we learned in mm -hmm. catechism, which is where I, I learned it, but uh, you know, probably happened in. Mm. In a different way, what do we do with all that? How, how does this? How does it have any any meaning or relevance in our in our lives? So I, I think both side, each side is making a mistake that needs to be corrected. Okay, so since I grew up in a in a Christian environment, let's start there. So the thing that Christians like about the seven day creation story is that it starts with an absolutely perfect world, and at least to the comfort of some people blames us on all the problems so that we don't have to blame God and like, okay, so Eve ate the fruit, everything went to hell in a handbasket. So here we are. So that explains it. So, so deal with it. All right. Well, I would like to suggest that um, there is no perfect world in the, in the Genesis story. It never says there, it was a perfect world. Okay. Like I think the thing, the, the story itself has been misread and misinterpreted for a thousand years in Christianity. So where does it ever say that the Garden of Eden was perfect? Now, again, I don't really care if you want to take it literally or figuratively or somewhere in between. That's really not the main issue here. The main issue is what is the story really trying to say? Well, here's, how, here's what I see in the story. The story starts with a tree you're not supposed to eat from, and it starts with a serpent who, in the Christian tradition, is Satan, who is the most pissed-off creature in the history of the universe. Now, i got a question for you. Which is more dangerous, a bacteria or Satan? The story starts with a very bad guy lurking around, and God doesn't really tell him. Okay, so, so the, the thing is set up, conflict is baked into the story from the very beginning. 
Okay, it's and it's it's very clear that these humans are supposed to contend with a very murky, ambiguous world from the word go. They're they're given a, a, a strong suggestion. You know, you really might not want to go do that, but they're given every opportunity to screw it up and have to go sort it out. Okay? Now, if that's not compatible with an evolutionary world, what is? In an evolutionary world, there's conflict baked in from the beginning, and it's just like entrepreneurship. It's hard, it's tricky, it's murky, and it's a bitch. Okay, so, so, the, so the reason that Christians don't like, like Christians like, when I, when I say nature isn't purposeless, it's purposeful. Christians like that. But when I say, hey, you know, the, the, the world's been in a state of conflict from the very beginning, they don't like that because I just took away their perfect little world. I'm like, you know what? You you guys invented that out of thin air. It's not in Genesis. It's not in there, okay? Uh, and I, I take these stories very seriously. And by the way, if you are a non-religious person and you really can't buy the Genesis story as a theological story and you don't you can't buy the idea of God, I have a suggestion for you. I would suggest that you look up Jordan B. Peterson channel on YouTube and watch his series of videos on Genesis. And what he does there is he explains it not in theological terms, but rather in terms of epic stories, ancient stories, and dream sequences, and evolutionary psychology of what these stories are really telling us. Because most people have never really dug into these stories to understand what they're really about. Okay, I think, I think most Christians only half understand what the stories are really about. Okay? Now, let's go, let's go to the atheist side. There's this huge misconception on the atheist side, and you know what it is? It is this idea that the universe is this place of blind, pitiless indifference, that it's all random, it's all chaos, it's all copying errors, and it's just natural selection. That is a big pile of BS. That does not stand up to any actual scientifically verifiable, experimentable process. Cells evolve. Everything in a cell is orderly, okay? And when you confront a cell or a plant or an animal with an impossible situation that maybe no, none of its ancestors had ever been presented with that unique situation, it will respond in unique, innovative ways. And it will do its best to alter, adjust, it will edit its DNA, and it's, it's just like small businesses. Most of the time, it will actually fail. Most of the ideas will end up being wrong, but some of the time, they succeed. So those little critters are split testing all the time. And planet Earth is a result of three and a half billion years of split testing by trillions of organisms, and that's why you look out the window and you have beautiful trees and beautiful mountains and beautiful grass and an ocean full of life. It, there is an intentional process that's been going on for billions of years, and humans are the first species to actually start to comprehend it in a self-reflective way. And that self-reflection is what religion and spirituality is all about. And science can't answer those questions. Hey, you know, um, you know, there's all these old people in the old people's home, and they're just consuming resources and oxygen. Shouldn't we just kill them? Well, a really simplistic scientific answer would be yes. But I think we're all smart enough to know, like, that's, uh, you know what? Uh, 
So I guess the one that's closer to home is the uh, the self-driving cars, right? This is coming up in just the next couple of years. People need to we need to make some very complicated decisions, and computers can't do it. Like, what do we do? Do we hit the deer? Do we hit the kid? Do we swerve? Do we not swerve? And uh, I think yeah. this is I think this is one of the most. I mean, euthanasia obviously is a big one that's come up, and abortion of course right. has been there forever. But like, these are these questions where like science just doesn't work, or like the the quote unquote belief in science just doesn't work. You just have to have a question about humanity which has to fall under some other category and uh i don't know i I just think that you know there's some issues which have been lingering around for a long time but this self-driving car one because everyone for the most part is in a car on a regular regular basis whereas people are not having abortions every single everyone is not having abortions every single day there are of course abortions happening all the time but i think this is going to really force people to take a look at some of these issues in new and different ways and a lot of this artificial intelligence augmented reality Reality, I think is going to force a lot of these issues to the forefront. So while it sounds like we're talking about something that's really ancient, I feel like timing is such that these are actually going to be bigger discussions than they have been in the past three decades or so, even though the world perhaps has become more atheist and agnostic. I, I think I think these are things that people have to start asking because we have to start making these decisions on a statewide level, on a nationwide level, who do we hit? Who do we euthanize? Who do we, you know, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's a big, it's a big, big thing. It's happening and it's coming very, very, it's right around the corner. Well, and I, I have a prediction about the self-driving cars thing and like the, you know, who do you hit? Cause like, that's a philosophical problem that's really come out right. about that. Right. The, 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 the question will be settled by not philosophers, not ethicists, not theologians. It will be settled by insurance companies actuaries yep (laughs) okay it will be well if you buy that self-driving car and you pay the insurance for whatever it does then we'll keep you out of jail okay and and that's what it'll be and and now if you think about it that's actually kind of ingenious because somebody does have to pay like if 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 the car you know swerves onto the sidewalk and kills a girl um you know well you can't you can't give them the girl back, but somebody's got to pay. So somebody will pay and like, and, 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 and it'll get, um, which, which really see that brings you back to the ancient, ancient religious practice of making sacrifices. When you do something evil, somebody has to sacrifice something and you never get away from that. So even in the newest question, it will echo the very oldest stories in the world and Solomon will turn out to be right that there's nothing new under the sun. You know, G.K. Chesterton said news is old things happening to new people. And, and so, so, but what I so you know, we all we we want to be better people and we want to build a better world. And whether you're an atheist or agnostic, well, I, I have a few suggestions. First of all, um, if you if you think that somebody's religious tradition is just silly and ridiculous, it's because you don't understand it. It always does make sense from a certain point of view, and it always does answer questions that you currently don't think are important. Okay, um, and secondly, I, I would really encourage to read those stories and consider that the authors are not trying to answer the questions that we think are important now. Like really, whether the like I I am absolutely certain that the Earth is billions of years old. I don't think there's any question about it. But frankly. Whether you think the Earth is 6,000 years old or 4 billion years old doesn't change the way you live your life much. It really doesn't, okay? However, um, 
whether you think the world is purposeful or not, or whether you under, like, I don't think religious conflict will make any sense to you unless you really understand the Cain and Abel story, because that's the first oldest, uh, most enduring story about religious conflict. And you actually start having to ask the question, so why was Cain so pissed at Abel? And what was Cain not willing to take responsibility for? And what are the things in that story that are the same in ever, whether it's Muslims blowing up bombs in London or, you know, anything else? Um, and you can't, you can't brush these questions off. They are really important. And there's this whole segment of our society that has just completely dismissed these questions. And it's really dangerous because if, if, if you have really important questions and you go, oh, that's not important that will circle around and it will whack you in the head with a two by four sooner or later, you know? And, and so, you know, I, I really want to just give a shout out to everybody who's listening and probably, I mean, I probably offended just about everybody <laughs> at some point in this conversation, but I really want to appreciate you for listening. And, you know, you don't have to agree with me, but, but I would, I would really encourage you, you know, if this has piqued your interest at all, read Evolution 2.0 and decide for yourself. Because that, I wrote that book to make people think, and it, it took six years to write it. It's, it's the hardest thing that I've ever done. There's, there's, really, there's really about 11 or 12 years of research that went into that book before it hit the bookstores. Um, and, and serious people are taking that book very seriously, by the way. You, you can see that when you read the Amazon reviews. And, and uh, it's generating a lot of discussion. I'm debating with the intelligent design people. I'm debating the Darwinists. Um, I, I, I'm, I, both sides have left out huge parts of the story, and, and the story had to be told. I, th I think it's the biggest untold story in science. Well, great. You know, Perry, I think uh, part of being a good learner is just asking good questions, and I think people listening, if they've made it this far, which I hope they have, I think they're, uh, they have a lot of questions. So for people who want to check out your book, follow your work along this topic, where's the best place for them to connect with you online? So you can get three free chapters of the book at CosmicFingerprints.com. Um, the book's on Amazon. You can buy it in hardback or Kindle or Audible. It's in audiobook. So if you like to listen, um, all, all of those versions are available. It'll be coming out in paperback soon. And um, I would really encourage you to go take the free chapters at CosmicFingerprints.com because that'll get you on, on our email list. And there's a lot of interesting things that are just about to happen that I can't talk about yet that you're going to want to know about. Let's just leave it at that. Like, I, you, please trust me on this. I'm not just going to spam you with a bunch of nonsense um, you really want to be on that list. Um, it will be very interesting uh, in the next few months because there's some big stuff coming. Well, Perry, thanks so much for coming on the show, and thanks for sort of rekindling this big question in my mind, and I know the same for a lot of our listeners. And, uh, yeah, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Today's nutritional tip is in response to a question from listener Richie. Richie says, hey, Lucas, what's the difference between turmeric and curcumin? Can't I just take turmeric? 
turmeric, why would I need to take curcumin? So curcumin is the active compound inside of turmeric that is lauded for its anti-inflammatory benefits specifically, sort of like the resveratrol in red wine or the capsaicin in chilies. There's these specific compounds inside of whole foods. Now, in some cases, like with chilies, it totally makes sense to eat chilies because there's quite a bit of capsaicin. With turmeric specifically, when you look at all the clinical data and all the research that's been done on the anti-inflammatory benefits of turmeric, they're talking about curcumin. So it's a much, much more potent extract. That said, I use turmeric a lot. I love the flavor. It's definitely a great food. It's definitely a superfood. It definitely is anti-inflammatory. But if you're dealing with something serious, let's say you have rheumatoid or osteoarthritis, let's say you have joint inflammation or you're recovering from an injury, and you're really trying to do very strong anti-inflammatory stuff with natural natural options, I would for sure go for a high quality curcumin supplement because that's where all the clinical data is. The amount of turmeric that you'd need to eat will probably make you smell like a curry shop and uh, quite literally you will smell like a curry shop. And so I'm a big fan of cur- cur- a big fan of turmeric, use it all the time, but if you're looking specifically for anti-inflammatory properties at a high level, not just sort of a you know low-grade self-care kind of thing, I would encourage you to look at supplementation specifically. The same goes for things like like resveratrol and red wine. You can't uh, can't drink enough red wine to get the resveratrol. Probably better off taking a supplement. Hope that's helpful, Richie. We've got a listener question here from Maya. Maya says, love your show. I am a yogi from London doing my teacher training, trying to get a grips and informed about my diet. I've been so inspired by your show. I'm learning so much working it into my life. Two questions. Firstly, my brother eats Huel, H-U-E-L. This is a meal replacement thing. It's a supplement for meals and claims to be good for balanced diets. We debate a lot about positives and negatives. I think fresh greens will always be the best way to eat. What are your thoughts on Huel if you've ever heard of it? Also, I've recently been involved in activated carbon and my diet's making me bloated and my stomach is very reactive. Shall I keep up with it or is this a bad sign? Is carbon good for you? Okay, so meal replacements. I'm not a huge fan of any of these things, whether you're talking about Soylent or Huel or, I mean, these meal replacement things have been around for 30 or 40 years. They just come out with a new one every year. I do know Huel. Someone left a bag of it in the office, so I've actually tried that one specifically. I don't like, if you're going to do a powder, I would say just take pure protein because that's the most difficult thing to engineer if you're on a plane, if you're stuck in a hotel room. And I will usually, when I say pure protein, I mean as high a percentage as you can get without hexane, which is usually 70 to 80%. I like to use pea protein and hemp protein. If you're a whey person, that might be an option for you. It's hard to get clean whey but it's hard to get clean anything else either. I used to recommend rice protein. I don't feel comfortable with rice protein anymore. There's problems with the processing. It gets weird molds and funky stuff. So my go-to proteins of choice, which are still problematic, are pea protein and hemp protein. Those are the ones I've been messing around with. And I'll also take L-leucine. We can talk about B, branched-chain amino acids on another day. In terms of fuel, these are these things where they try to add in carbs and they try to add in greens and this kind of stuff. I just find that all of these things, first of all, it's super easy to get carbs, even healthy carbs when you're on the road or when you're busy. Just eat some fruit or eat some rice or eat like a sweet potato or eat an apple or something like that. So that's an easier way rather than eating something that's powdered and dried. And more than anything, these meal replacements just jack up my 
stomach. I don't like them at all. So I try to simplify as much as possible. I find that unflavored, unsweetened, just disgusting, gritty, straight protein powder, your body can adapt to. At least my body's been able to adapt to better than anything else. I'm not against Huel in general. Uh, I'm, I'm not, you know, if, you, if that's working for you, by all means do it. And if it's the, if it's choosing between that and, you know, a crappy dining hall or cafeteria food or whatever it is, maybe it's a good choice, but make sure it's a temporary thing. It's a supplement, not a, a replacement permanently. In terms of activated carbon, I have the same reaction. I, re- I react to absolutely everything I take, whether it's vitamin C or vitamin D or whatever it is. Everything irritates me. Activated carbon can mess me up as well. You might try other forms of activated carbon. Um, I've never been a huge fan. It's never done anything for me. Uh, the reason people take it is because it can it can help to get things out of your body. It can be it's kind of ash, essentially, and it can help to clean things, to chelate things out of your body. It's thought of as a detoxifying agent, uh, literally chelating specific toxins. And people will take it after a bad meal, after they eat restaurant foods and things like that. I'm not a fan personally, but a lot of people swear by it. If it doesn't work for you, stop taking it. Hope that's helpful. Thanks for listening, Maya. If you have questions, email me podcast at yogabody.com. I like voicemail too, yogabody.com forward slash asklucas. If you like the Yoga Talk Show, you'll definitely want to get on our mailing list. Go to yogabody.com forward slash sign me up. This is my private email list where once a week at the very most, I'll send you a quick update. This is where I send some of my insider information, some of the stuff that's not really for public consumption, but specifically for Yoga Talk Show listeners, early announcements of new courses and new products. And just for signing up, we give away a free prize. Usually we have some kind of physical gift or MP3 download, some kind of pose chart. We change it up every month. But to join the top secret list, please go to Yoga yogabody.com forward slash sign me up. Thanks so much. And we'll talk to you soon. This week's iTunes review winner is from Barefoot Wanderer in the UK. Barefoot Wanderer says, Game Changer. Hi, Lucas. Just wanted to send you some big love. Your yoga podcast has changed the way I practice, breathe, and feel, and I've caught up on all the episodes in just a few weeks. So refreshing to have a sensible and clear perspective to help wade through all the contradictory jargon. Keep doing what you're doing. Many thanks from Emma. Emma, thanks so much for your review. Email us, podcast at yogabody.com. We'll send you out a yoga trapeze. If you're new to the show, you don't know how this works. Every week, we do a lucky draw with everybody who leaves a review on iTunes. To leave your review, go to yogabody.com dot com forward slash reviews it's one of the simplest ways you can support the show and to incentivize you we do a lucky draw if you're a regular yoga talk show listener you'll definitely want to get on my email list go to yogabody.com forward slash sign me up when you enter your email address there we always have free giveaways every month yoga straps water bottles discounts in our shop and all kinds of other things when you sign up at yogabody.com forward slash sign me up i'll send you just one email a week with updates about the show special offers new courses and valuable information that i think you'll find useful so go to yogabody.com forward slash sign me up to claim your free prize now